This is the Addiction Recovery Podcast with Stephen T. Ginsberg, founder of Restore Detox Centers in sunny California. Enjoy your experience. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Addiction Recovery. My name is Steve Coffrin. I'm here with Stephen Ginsberg. He is the founder of Restore Detox Centers and really the expert on the show. So, Stephen, hey. It's great to be back together again today. Love, love being with you as well, brother. And I'm so appreciative that we are continuing to focus on the solution and, and deliver and provide hope and answers. Absolutely. So last episode, if you missed it, make sure you go back and listen to episode two, where we're talking about how do you know if someone's an addict? I want to build on that conversation is, is such a, a great episode. And I left there with this big question. So Stephen, let me set the stage here a little bit. Everybody has their own story. I'm going to share a little bit of, about mine. My dad married my mom when she was young. They were both young and it started out and he was like this party animal, the funny guy, you know, drinking and, you know, smoking some weed and doing some other drugs at parties. And then it progressed, right? Like we talked about in other episodes and soon it became this full-blown addiction. And my mom had five kids with my dad, my biological dad. And, you know, my brother would be like playing on the ground or like in the couch and he'd find like a bag of Coke. And my mom's like, okay, that's enough. It's totally unsafe. You know, he's coming home late at night from bar fights. His nose is bleeding. It won't stop bleeding because he's doing so much Coke. I mean, it's just a mess. So she gave him an ultimatum. She said, look, Joe, it's either drugs or your kids. It's very simple. You choose. And he chose drugs. I was three years old at the time he left. My mom had five kids with him. And here I am like growing up without a dad. And I was a mess. Like in my teenage years, I always wondered, okay, why do my friends have their dad, but I don't have a dad. And I, I just always thought about that. I prayed about it and I didn't get an answer until I was older. Then finally I had my first kid and I realized it's better to be a son without a father than a father without a son. Because I thought, oh my goodness, if I missed all these opportunities that I had with my kid, it'd be terrible. But my dad had no clue what he was missing out. So my question to you, that's kind of a long-winded setup here. Why do addicts, Stephen, why do they sometimes choose their addiction over things or over people that they absolutely love and adore? It's a great question. It's a very large, broad, jumping off point, talking point. So so your, your lead into it is very apropos and very relevant. There is so much monumental collateral damage the the things, the people that matter most, that we love the most, are the people that we also hurt the most and that suffer the most behind addiction and alcoholism. And it very quickly falls away from the realm of choice. There's such an illness with what, with what ails people who suffer from addiction and alcoholism that no matter what consequence the people they love and that are near and dear to them suffer, they want their substance, they want their alcohol, they want to participate in not feeling how they feel on life's terms, and they will do anything to get that feeling at the expense of any relationship or any individual. So, I mean, let me ask you this, and, and this is this may be far-fetched or inappropriate or whatever it may be, but let me just ask you this question. You know, I've, since then, I've forgiven my dad. I'm over it. It's not like I'm, you know, living with this pain anymore. Like I've I've been healed from it. But Stephen, you've been on the other side where, you know, you were deep into drugs. You're probably hurting a lot of people in your life. Do you think my dad like loved us? Like, how could he actually like look at five kids? I mean, you have two beautiful kids. 
It's like, how can my dad like look at his kids and say, you know what? I'm walking out the door because I want to go do my next line of Coke. Listen, again, remarkably important talking point. I would dare to say in real time, did, did your father love you? Of course he did. It's, it's the fact that ho- of how much we hate ourselves when we are participating in active addiction and alcoholism. We are out to destroy ourselves. Uh, we have this unbelievable, terrible emptiness. We can't get away from the pain. And we, we are doing the long form of suicide when we are participating in addiction and alcoholism. And very, very candidly, we don't want people that we love and that are in our lives to suffer from the perils and the aftermath of what we participate in. So we remove ourselves both through our conduct and through our actions. And it is our self-hatred that alienates the people we love. It's not that we don't love the people in our life. So, okay. So if I hear you right, you're saying the hatred that we have for ourselves sometimes can far outweigh the love that we have for each other. Absolutely. I'll bring it home a little closer to home and involving my father as well. One of the most important people in my life. And and I praise God that my father's still with us at, at 85 years young. One of the most important people in my life is my father. The, the relationship I damaged the most through my addiction was with my father. I didn't have Nicole at the time, my wife. We did not have children. Uh, praise God, my children have only known me sober. Nicole has only known me sober. But what I had is I had my dad. And yes, I damaged other people in my families. Those relationships were damaged as well. But the number one relationship that was damaged was with my dad. And I adore my father. But he fell under that scope. I was so miserable with myself and so unhappy, uneasy with myself that my addiction and alcoholism, uh, the suffering from that directly affected my relationship with him most. Okay. Well, well, let me ask you this. I mean, because this is another perspective that I carried with me for years and it caused a lot of hurt. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can probably relate. Some of my hurt though, came from not only did my dad abandon me, okay. And my siblings, but also like in my mind, I always envision my dad like out there having a great time, you know, giving high fives and, you know, having a, a blast being crazy and silly and, you know, drinking and, you know, going out and doing all this stuff. So in my mind, I'm thought, I'm thinking, okay, my dad's out there having all this fun. And here I am like suffering, miserable, you know, we're struggling financially because my mom's now this single parent trying to raise us and make ends meet. And he's out there having a great time. So that created a lot of resentment. What's your perspective on that? Because you've been on the other side. Is it really that? I mean, do you think people, when they're living this, this life, they're like, yeah, this is great. I'm having such a wonderful time. Or do you think it's like, okay, yeah, it may look like a wonderful time, but they're actually miserable. I will tell you firsthand, it's the biggest nightmare in the world. Literally, I can't put it better than that. Uh, I was so utterly alone and so isolated. And most people who are in the throes of true chronic addiction and alcoholism, these are not social butterflies. They're not running around at happy hour. It's miserable hour 24-7. Very alienated, very ostracized, very alone, utterly hopeless, massive amounts of despair, And of course, the first realm of people who get pushed away are the people who are closest and know us best. Uh, We don't want them to bear witness to any of that. It is a thankless, horrible time. 
And then you can only pray and hope that they reach a bottom so they can start to have a desire and a willingness to vest in the solution. Hmm. That's interesting. So what would you say to somebody who is in a relationship? Maybe they're in a romantic relationship. Let's address that first. And their partner like, will not give up the booze. Their partner will not give up the drugs. And I mean, they're super sweet during the day when they're sober. It's great. But then it's like, okay, you know, here I am laying in bed at night, reading my book while my husband or my wife or my partner, whoever it may be is out there, you know, getting high or getting drunk Mm -hmm. and like, why don't they choose me? Like, am I not worth something to them? Like, what would you say to somebody who's feeling that? First and foremost, I, I will prayerfully hope that anyone who is in a circumstance at all like that in any way, shape, and form, I want to urge you, if you hear these words, to jump right on your phone, your computer, your tablet, and please find Al-Anon. Al-Anon is a remarkable program, helps people develop coping mechanisms and realize that they're not alone, who are living amongst the confines of an addict or an alcoholic. Please pursue that first and foremost, pursue Al-Anon. Secondarily, please know this, that is no personal reflection upon the individual that we're speaking about in this hypothetical situation, which is all too real. It is a reflection of what is lacking and what is missing and where the person suffering from the ailment is hurting. It has nothing to do with the person who is actually falling victim to someone who's participating in addiction or alcoholism. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about expectations and standards. Okay. So I just had a conversation with my wife about this the other night, and I think it's very fascinating. I don't have the answer. I'm just going to pose this as a question to you. And I just want to hear your thoughts, but let me tee this up here for a minute. When it comes to setting boundaries with people. So we're, we're talking about an addict who's choosing their addiction over loved ones or something they love, and it's causing pain and it's causing damage in some form or fashion. So my wife and I were sitting here talking the other night and we're talking about expectations and I have a terrible time with expectations. I have this mind where I visualize things. Like if I go run a marathon, like I've already ran the marathon in my head. I've ran it like five times. I could tell you what I'm eating that morning, what the the starting line looks like, the people around me, the smells. I I can already tell you because I've visualized it and I have this in my mind. So therefore, since I could visualize it, it's really good because then I could go out there and execute and then I could combine vision with execution and achieve some great things. It's terrible in regards of if things don't go my way, my expectations like can really like be a problem. So, you know, we're talking about expectations in this regards and it's like, okay, with, with expectations, I expect certain things, right? I expect certain things to be a certain way. And, and it's not like it's, oh, it's Steve's way or no way. Don't, don't hear me wrong. And then there's standards. And the way I look at standards, like there's a lot of things that we should do. There are things that we know we should do. Like, Hey, I should eat better. I should go work out. I should probably get more sleep, but then, you know, other things come up and we push those things aside. But when we're like, okay, these are things I have to do. These are my standards. I'm not going to go below these standards. Like that stuff gets done. So recently I was on this trip with my wife and my mom and her husband and it's a great time. And you know, I, I, was, I was trying to relate this expectations and standards thing to this road trip. And I was saying, look, like I have the standard of eating. I'm weird with eating, Stephen. And there's certain food that I'm not going to eat because I don't want to feel like garbage. 
Okay. So there's just certain fast food places. I won't name them, call them out, but I just don't eat it. Cause for me, it just makes me feel terrible. And so like, that's my standard. I'm not going to eat that stuff. So my expectation, I have these expectations of how I think things are going to go. I have these standards that I'm not going to fall below. And then we started translating that to kids and stuff where it's like, I have an expectation that, you know, our kids are going to talk respectfully to my wife and the kids will follow certain rules around our home. Like they're not going to come into our home and bring drugs and alcohol. They're not going to be drunk. They're not going to call, you know, me a bad word or call my wife something else, you know, like those are our standards. Like that's not going to happen, but we have certain expectations where it's like, Hey, if we do this, we expect to thank you. We expect you to be generous or kind. And so talk to me a little bit about expectations, standards, setting boundaries. And I know that's kind of long-winded, but I really want to provide a little bit of help and maybe some um, guidelines to people who are dealing with addicts who continuously choose the drug or the ism over them. And it's destroying their Mm -hmm. self-worth. It's destroying the relationship. How do you see expectations and standards and all that stuff and boundaries? How do you see all that stuff playing a part here in this discussion? I I, I love where you're at because you're leading into one of the most important aspects of all this. And we're talking about relationships and the way that they suffer at the hands of addiction and alcoholism. And here's the answer to all of that, Stephen. It's, It's important and it's imperative. We must not ever enable addiction and alcoholism. And so the standard, the standard to bear very simply is this. Someone that we love in our life is participating in behaviors that are producing unmanageability, and those behaviors are derived around addiction and alcoholism. We must do nothing to perpetuate nor enable that behavior. There must be unbelievably adherent boundaries set. There must be ultimatums produced and provided, and they must be lived up to. And that is how we go about the business of protecting people from themselves. Uh, if, if we are going to compromise and acquiesce and enable that type of behavior, we are endangering the people we love. We are endangering their lives. Okay. But let me say this. I mean, what if I have a son, my son's an addict in what am I going to do? Kick him out of the house, Stephen? Like, yes, they're going to hate me. They'll never talk to me again. They will. They will. They will talk to you again. They hate themselves. It's not you that they hate. And the best thing you could do in the world for that child in this example is kick them out of the house because the fact that they have a roof over their head, the fact that they're having food provided for them, the fact that they're having clothing provided for them, the fact that God forbid we're providing money for them, which they're using for their addiction or their alcoholism. We are killing our children in those examples. And there have been many tough conversations I've had with parents, Steve, where I'm like, you're going to kill your kid. And that's a tough thing to say, but it's even harder when you're standing at the memorial and they've enabled this child and they've perpetuated the addiction and the alcoholism. And there we are at a memorial for a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, an 18-year-old. And it's because they weren't bold enough to force them to participate in the solution. Hmm. Yeah. And that would be tragic. I mean, I can't imagine standing over a kid's grave with that guilt. And, you know, I, I feel for anybody who's listening to this, who's had to go through that. I mean, that's terrible, but okay. Let me, let me give you another situation. I'm a spouse or a partner to somebody. They're the, the breadwinner. They're the, also the addict. They treat me terribly. 
But like, what am I going to do? Like lay down the law and say, these are my standards. Like if you violate them, then I'm kicking out of the house. Like, what am I yes. going to do? Like, I'm going to be desolate. I'm, I don't yes. have any money. I don't have education to go out there. Like, what what would I do? Maybe it's not that big so, of a problem. Maybe maybe they're not really an addict. Maybe it's just in my head. I mean, what what if I'm thinking all this stuff? I, th- I think I think that at that point you re- you reach out for resources, you reach out for help, you contact people like ourselves, you go ahead and you contact the Al-Anon and you get together with someone who's got some experience, strength, and hope in this arena, and realize that we can't, at the expense of someone's life that we love, worry about being desolate or destitution. We've got to put first things first, which is again, and this is repetitive, but I'm repetitive by nature because the solution's repetitive. We've got to protect the individual from themselves and we've got to own up to and live amidst the real reality that someone's having an issue, someone's having a problem. And yes, you know, you, you will get a very hard, fast yes for me on putting people out of the house if they're conducting themselves in this fashion. You've absolutely got to have those hard lines and those boundaries. It's the only thing that breaks to and breaks through the cycle and the chain of addiction and alcoholism is those type of ultimatums and those type of behavior patterns and responses. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. You mentioned previously that self-hatred is really the driver behind these addicts behaviors. So oftentimes it's not the person who is suffering, who's feeling like they're completely worthless and not loved because this person's choosing drugs over them. It's like, geez, how can this powder be more valuable than a human life? Like, how am I not lovable? So you're saying it's more self-hatred from the the addict, but do you think there's cases that where, you know, maybe a spouse, a partner, a kid, or some type of situation is causing so much angst or stress that it's leading somebody to drink? So really it's, the other person's fault and it's not necessarily the addict's fault? No, I absolutely don't believe that at all. I think that's pure denial. And I think that if anyone's turning the circumstances around, first of all, let's just look at this imaginary. There's a crisis in a household. There's a crisis in a relationship. There's a crisis in a marriage. And what's going to make that crisis better is perpetual heavy drinking and drugging. It's only going to amplify and magnify the issues at hand. So nothing like that is reality. That's often a very common cop-out and a very common form of denial from someone who suffers from the ism. And, And we must not fall victim to that. We are not the driving force. The individuals, the force that is driving the behavior with this said individual is the untreated addiction and the untreated alcoholism. The people and places around them are not what are guilty of the transgressions. The What's guilty of the transgression is not facing life on life's terms and not besting in the solution. Hmm. I love it. Well said. Well, this has been a great episode. I, I really appreciate you letting me share my story about my dad and I, I love your response. I mean, you know, that's a perspective that I've, I've never really considered. So uh, there's been a lot of growth here and just, you know, it, it just adds to my healing story. So Stephen, thank you so much for contributing your insights and your expertise here. Steve, thank you. And again, I'm so grateful and privileged that we're taking time to step back amidst a very delicate topic and talk about the solution. And again, I want to urge you, if you have a loved one who's suffering or a family member who's suffering or a friend or contemporary suffering, please do not hesitate. Reach out to us and also reach out to Al-Anon if you're in a marriage or have a parent 
or a child who's suffering, Al-Anon is a great solution and offers hope and you'll realize you're not alone. And no matter what, please don't enable that person and do not live in denial, live in the solution. Absolutely. I I love that. Well said. And those of you who are listening, you'll often hear us refer to, we'll put it in the show notes, that comment, we'll put it in the show notes and you may be wondering where are the show notes. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple or your favorite podcast platform, if you click on description in the, the description of the podcast, click on that and then it'll open up and you'll see different links. So we'll provide links for you um, exactly what we're talking about here. So you can just click on those and, and gain access to these resources that we're mentioning today. So thank you everybody for joining us. Once again, the best compliment you could give us is sharing this episode with those who mean the most to you. The, the faster we get this message out there to the world, the more healing happens and the more lives that are saved. And we we truly believe that. I hope you could feel that through our passion. Um, always reach out to us. Hello at RestoreDetoxCenters.com. Send us messages, send us feedback, send us comments. If you have other ideas for additional shows, we'd love to hear from you. So please connect there. And until next episode, take care of yourself.